Recollections of Maral, 25 years on, an address by Brother James Thrift. This address would have been given by Brother James to a group of brothers, probably in the late 1960s. To young schoolchildren in Australia, 25 years ago is a long time. To boys in Solomon Islands, who live much more in the present time, it means very little. They look for schooling, they have a school, and they are satisfied with that. In early August 1938, when we arrived at Tulagi, we had little idea of necessary clothing. I remember four things we had to see about. Light underwear, a cork helmet, a light raincoat, and an umbrella. We arrived in heavy black clothes and had to cling to them until others were tailored. It was reasonably quick work overcoming that problem, for His Lordship Bishop Albert and Father de Klerk saw to it that we got to, men, to one of the many Chinese tailoring shops. Rain and real heat are vivid recollections of the Tulagi stay of two days or so. Rolling perspiration during the bedtime hours and little sleep as a result produced that tired feeling. One afternoon we set out in the Hambia for Visale. The journey was pleasant in the late afternoon. All had a good look at Savo before dark. The Visale boys had bonfires ready for our welcome, but when it got beyond bedtime, the welcome was cancelled and they saw us for the first time at Mass the next morning. We found Visale extra warm too. It appears the staff there goes to bed about 9.45pm when the temperature changes. You can hear the timbers cracking in the walls then. We saw the boys in school and had a good look at things in general. At the weekend there was mountain climbing above the station. Those grassy hillsides are so steep. Brother George's printer was our guide. I think his name was Alec. Apparently we gave him some anxious moments when we failed to keep a sure footing in dangerous places. His reflexes were wonderful and his grab was swift and sure as some of us experienced. In about four days we went off by the Hambia to Father de Klerk's mission station at Tangerare. That was the centre from which the mission language was adopted. We had to get some idea of it. I remember well the long swell on the sea surface at the western end of the island. The long run down and the long climb up continued for a couple of hours. There were a few plantations and many native villages on the coast. Father de Klerk looked after us well. We occupied a large new building that had been prepared for his schoolboys. We were the first tenants. There was a large gathering of people for our second Sunday and a variety of dancers put on the shows. One day, some freshly killed meat from a young bull upset me properly. Everything refused to stay put. We also saw what a good bout of malaria can do. Our host was stricken for a week, and someone came from Visale to check if medical attention was required. The good sisters had pulled him through. One thing I noticed at the Sunday Mass and the show was the variety in size among the menfolk. 
There was a range of thick-set, strongly built ones to others of various builds. Their heights ranged from about five feet to about the six-foot-three-inch mark. The children wandered between fathers and mothers during Mass, for sexes are separated there. At times, the child was prevailed upon to kneel down, and the parent would take it by the hand to teach it the sign of the cross or point to the altar. After two weeks, the Hambia called to bring us back to Vasale for the 90-mile trip to Marao. It was begun at night-time in a very calm sea. Deck chairs do not make ideal sleeping couches. The head finds no resting place, so the neck is soon in trouble and sleep terminates. The vicious circle continues all night at wide intervals. A sister, on her way to Winoni Bay, was seasick for the whole night and looked the part at daylight. All went ashore at Ruavatu for mass and breakfast and remained for a few hours. In two hours travelling, we were abreast of Ruasura and three miles from it. The island, of about 400 acres, was where the Catholic mission made a start in 1898. The pioneers of that venture had learnt the lesson from the tragic attempt of 50 years earlier. At Ruasura, they let themselves be known by working on the simple pride of the natives. They brought in workboys to make a coconut plantation, learnt something of their language and printed it. The boys were taught to read it, and when their time was up they went back to the villages armed with their books to show off their reading ability. It was the thin edge of the wedge. Ambition was aroused in the villages and request for schooling came in. Next, they wanted mission stations in their areas, and a that was a request that the mission tried to fulfil. Our school had already been running for two years under Father Moore at Marao. It was another step forward. We were among the islands and channels in Marao Sound for about an hour before coming to our anchorage. It was getting towards sundown. Father Moore and many of his 42 boys were there, called by the sound of the conch shells blown by the approaching boat's crew. We met Father John Coicard on the path, about halfway to the school. The mission buildings were about a quarter of a mile from the water. After a short look about, we were served a cup of tea at the presbytery. There were no permanent buildings like the weatherboard ones on the old and older stations. Ours were all native style, put up in a hurry when the project was started, to house about 40 boys. New ones of a better style were to be built, and Brother Michael S.M. was already on the spot, getting work done with the aid of some labourers. Our house had just been completed. The floor and doors were of sawn timber, while the walls and roof were of native leaf. At a convenient time, the boys were brought to the presbytery and introduced by Father Moore. Each of us felt like the man who was called upon to identify a Chinese in a lineup of those nationals. They all appeared alike. We marvelled at Father's ability to put names on them. But it came to us soon enough too, and stuck, in such a way that when I found myself at Hunter's Hill in 1943, my problem was to distinguish the Australian faces in my second division, especially those of full features. Boys called up did not correspond with names I had written down for a purpose. 
Brother John and Brother Ephraim went into school within the first week or so. There was much to get underway, so I was busy about the place. Fortunately, I had a small kit of tools. It was so strange not being able to find even an odd bolt around the place. Chinese trading vessels came in often enough, and they were a godsend. The new school got underway eventually. Furthermore, withdrew from the school within a few months, but gave instructions and also a very good sermon on Sundays for about six months before going to Sydney for his second novitiate. In May 1939, the boys who finished their second year returned to their villages and were replaced by bigger numbers. At the time, Brother John made some changes in the program. He considered that they were necessary and waited until there were a few older ones about to feel a change or make comparisons. In time, a batch of island boys from Takwa arrived. They soon made their presence felt in a genuine way. Canoe making improved because they knew how to use tools. They saw that there were ideal fishing possibilities which the local people did not seem to worry about. They suggested making nets if all contributed something towards the scheme. Brother John agreed with their enthusiasm and went ahead with plans. Eleven boys were found who could make nets and others were willing to learn. The rest were detailed to keep the material, that is the inner bark of certain trees, up to the net maker. Spare time was wholly used up and within weeks enough fathom squares of net were ready to be laced together. Several exceeded their quota but odd ones were in arrears. Good hauls of fish came in right from the start, and nets were made longer as more fathoms were produced. With their cooking methods, a good haul could be made to last a week. Sail making came on also, and much sailing was done on the harbour at weekends. Brother John's idea was also to produce more native vegetables, and so cut down the rice bill. Brother Ephraim managed, managed to get a very small quantity of rice, really a few grains of paddy rice. It was grown and produced well, perhaps a couple of pounds. Then a big difficulty presented itself. There was no husking machine. When the Brothers School in Bougainville was opened in July 1941, Brother John went there and Brother Irvin joined our staff. Things were very unsettled in those days when shipping was wanted elsewhere and mail and provisions came most irregularly. When Japan came into the conflict, things got worse. We had no wireless, and reports and rumours were hard to separate. We found it better not to ask the local natives any questions of what might be happening at the other end of Guadalcanal or even further afield. It would come back within a week or so as an actual event, so much increased. For instance, if the question was, did the Japanese attack Melbourne? We would find out from a distant area next week that the city had been occupied by the Japanese. Finally, in May, the small squad of our force left Tulagi just ahead of the Japanese. Other planes were then often seen in the skies, while ours came back at night and raided installations further north. Some missionaries on Guadalcanal lost their lives, others were in danger. Visale was occupied and destroyed. On 5 August 1942, Marao was occupied by the Japanese. 
That was but two days before they lost their new airfield. We were placed on parole. Two days later, the day of the big attack, our harbour was visited by seven carrier planes and the two Japanese boats were destroyed. Food supplies were lost. The attack made our new neighbours savage and we had to take the blame for what had taken place. Two parties raided us at dawn next morning and collected and tied up the two fathers and three brothers on our veranda. They had discussions and we were threatened and condemned, it seems, by sword swipes at our throats and heads. The machine gunner was ordered out. He picked his position at distance and proceeded to set up his gun. The roar of planes interrupted things and all the Japanese took refuge in our house. We heard later that four carriers were operating not so far away that morning and the planes were going and coming for the whole seven hours that the unwelcome visitors were in our place. There were long questionings. After some hours, our ropes were taken off. They had to be fed too. About one o'clock they warned us again and left for the shelter of the bush. After many efforts, their searchers found nothing worthwhile. For nearly a month they remained close, then marched away towards the fighting area and some food dumps. They were eventually set upon by the Americans and wiped out. One good thing came out of the presence of American troops. Catholic natives got a wonderful lift from finding that thousands of American Marines and troops were Catholics and went to Mass, Confession and Holy Communion like themselves. Some of our ex-students walked 60 miles back to Marao and told us, among other things, that hundreds of American Marines used to go to Mass in the coconut plantations. They had been told that whites do not belong to the Catholic Church in English-speaking countries, and ours had been inclined to believe the report rather than their own school. With the departure of the Japanese went many of our smaller possessions, alarm clocks from school and house, watches, razors, scissors, pocket knives, small tools, torches, and many small items that could readily go into military pockets were the main items taken. We had been warned, but a dawn raid caught us a little unprepared. Our captors had gone, however, and we prepared to get along with what was left. Beards became fashionable. In spite of the food we had to give away, we were never short. Flour would have failed us except for the fortunate rescue of a United States airman from the sea. He taught us how to make cornbread. There was a fair supply of corn and a miniature crusher. Two hours' work produced enough meal for a small loaf. We had cattle, fowls, fish and local vegetables to stand by us. The boys were free to fish again, but it was an unsettling situation. So much air activity around us day and night, and the rumour of our evacuation, which became a reality for us in November. Brother James Thrift